0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony. Tad Williams is the author of Tail Chaser's Song, and the classic fantasy trilogy, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, the two Green Angel Tower novels, Siege and Storm, The *Otherland* and Shadow March series, the novels of The War of the Flowers and Caliban's Hour. His newest book is The Dirty Streets of Heaven. Thank you for joining me, Tad. Nice to be here. Ted, let's uh, ratchet back and talk a little bit about Tailchaser's song. This is sometimes described as a YA novel, and I think this is a YA novel only if you delight in terrorizing your children.
1: <laughs> Which, coincidentally, I wrote it long before I had children, but now that I'm a dad, yes, I do delight in terrifying my children. I've made rather a study of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I used to have, um, I, I actually had some friends once, I remember, who were, uh, called me, literally called me up and said, they were reading it to their Nine-year-old daughter at night, and they had just gotten to the part where I think the the the, the cats were being dragged into some kind of underground prison compound, and and yeah, you know, I mean, just like there were these horrible. Auschwitz kind of like things happening uh, to cats and and they were saying, you know, what 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 are you doing to I said, you didn't ask me if you should read that to a 9-year-old, I could have told you. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, some some stronger young readers I'm sure can deal with it all right if they can read Harry Potter or something, but I mean, yeah, there's scary bits and it wasn't specifically written to be a kids book.
0: Now, one of the things that really interests me about that book is when you decide to write a book that anthropomorphizes animals in, in the way you did, that there's a kind of different levels of doing that. And I'm wondering how you found the level you chose, which is pretty highly anthropomorphized. And God, I'm not going to say that word right, again. You said that exactly right. <laughs> and and uh, how you chose that, was that a, a matter of the prose, the voice, the characters, the plot?
1: Well, I would imagine it was all of the above. The, the reason I'm saying imagine is because that was my very first book. And when I wrote it, um, I didn't really have anything resembling technique or, or principles. You know, I was just trying to figure out if I could be a writer or not. And so most of my decision making was kind of at the pre-conscious level. I did want... Um, you know, uh, and if, it being an animal book, I did want some animal characteristics in them. But I also was primarily telling a fantasy story. I wasn't thinking of it so much as a cat story as it was a fantasy of which the main characters happen to be cats. So, you know, I think in that sense, it probably is more on the, the, the anthropomorphic side of the dial. Um, but, you know, it's unlike my later books. I've become a very conscious writer as time has gone on. But that that's kind of later on. That was 30 years ago, and it was kind of – I was just throwing stuff into the air at that point and kind of seeing if
0: it worked. I'd like you to talk about uh, developing the, the kind of – the, some of the traditional fantasy tropes for the feline world. And there's a lot of, I mean, f- this is a really sophisticated kind of uh, novel and uh, a lot of uh, interesting uh, references for those of us who love uh, J.R. Tolkien. There's
1: definitely, well, I, you know, I spent, I would say, my first five or six years as a fantasy writer um, dealing with my both my debt to and the, the genre's debt to Tolkien. Um, and I'll Preface that by saying, you know, I loved Tolkien. I grew up on the Lord of the Rings. I really read—I read them before the Hobbit. I read it maybe when I was eleven for the first time. I read it probably twenty times in the next ten or fifteen years. Uh, Tolkien definitely suffused my young reading life. Um, at the same time, I also came of age when fantasy writing was beginning to become. Not so much institutionalized as commercialized. In other words, it was developing as a commercial subgenre, largely because of the success of Tolkien. So, on the one hand, I, I, you know I, I, I loved this stuff and I had internalized it, but on the other hand, I was also seeing a lot of other people who had loved it and internalized it, but I felt did not understand where Tolkien fit into the larger picture. And so if they were going to write fantasy, they were writing it with the presupposition that Tolkien was kind of like a Bible. And the reason that was significant to me was because Tolkien was very much not just a man of his era, but he was a man of his particular type. He was um, an Oxford Don, a philologist, and a Catholic. And all these things were crucial. Oh, and he was also... um, Not all that thrilled with the modern age. And all these things uh, were were a big part of who Tolkien was, which is fine. That's what makes his work interesting, in part, is because of his very deep, strong feelings and beliefs come through the work. And all the best books of any kind, whether they're by nihilists or um, Protestant missionaries, you know, the very best books are those books which really reflect the strength of people's interests and beliefs. So no problem with Tolkien's beliefs. But the problem I had was a lot of people writing in that second generation, the the first generation of commercial fantasists, were taking Tolkien and just sort of parroting his central beliefs as the underpinnings of fantasy worlds as if they were not idiosyncratic. You know, it was as if every detective that came along after Sherlock Holmes had to play the violin and snort coke. You know, I mean, it was just that kind of arbitrary so I don't want to make this a hugely long answer, but it's a subject I'm rather interested in.
0: Me too. So continue.
1: Well, so when I sat down to writing fantasy, first with *Tailchaser Song* and then after that with the *Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn* books, I was definitely working through all these things. So what you get in *Tailchaser Song* is you get more kind of some sort of knowing or even joking asides, some some references to some aspects of Tolkien, but more in the sense of almost kind of like. Gentle parody. There's a whole setup for the uh, the main character meeting the Queen of the Cats in kind of the center of cat culture, which is pretty funny if you own cats anyway. Um, just even thinking about a center of cat culture. But anyway, so it's basically a parody of Lothlorien. It's a parody of the you know the famous scenes in The Lord of the Rings where where Frodo and and the rest of the band of of uh, surviving. Uh, fellowship. the rest of the surviving fellowship make their way into Lothlorien and meet Galadriel and sort of, in the midst of all the other things going on, see this kind of quintessence of, of, of elven, you know, uh, eternity on earth. It's very dramatic and beautiful. Anyway, so my version of that does the same thing, sets it all up. They're going to meet the king, Queen of Cats, who, of course, is beautiful and white as snow and all that. And the first glimpse we have of her as they're ushered into her august presence is her with one leg in the air, and she's biting on her butt, you know, like as cats do. So so that ki- there was that kind of level of joking stuff that goes in and out through Tailchaser's Song. By the time I got to the Memory Sorrow and Thorn books, of which Dragonbone Chair is the first and Green Angel Tower is the last... I was more explicitly trying to deal with the subject matter. And in this case, specifically, I was trying to take the Tolkienian tropes that had been used and beaten to death by people that I thought didn't understand them, and I was trying to turn some of them on their heads to show people why these things were not necessarily things that should be taken as gospel. One of the classic versions of that being, The idea of a golden age, which permeates Tolkien, which goes straight back, I think, to his Catholicism, among other things. The idea of a fallen present, you know, as compared to a um, a, a mystically beautiful and almost perfect past. And again, that's all through Tolkien. That goes, you know, That's the theme of the Silmarillion. It's the theme of the Lord of the Rings. It's the theme of pretty much all his work. And it, you know, part of it is Catholicism. Part of it is his real dislike of the modern era. He thought motor cars were ruining Oxford. He had never gotten over the gas lights being changed to electric lights. He was a bit of a curmudgeon, in fact. So anyway... So in my books, I'm setting up, and so everybody else who'd come along had basically, you know, institutionalized this idea of the golden age. So in the Dragonbone Chair and all those books, I set up the same premise, but then over the course of the story, it turns out to be illusory, or in some case, actually not just fictional, but, but pernicious, but bad. You know, It's this idea of shut up, don't ask questions, this is the way it used to be and everything was great. And then as the main characters begin to dig through layers of history, because it's germane to them, they begin to find that, oh no, it wasn't like that in the old days. Everything wasn't quite that wonderful, unless you were the one making this, the history, which we still see. So there's a bunch of other examples of that all through those books, but that was really, you know, I was still grappling with, again, not Tolkien himself so much, but his effect on this now quite huge subgenre that I too was a reader of as well as being a new writer of. So, so for me, that was really big in those first few books, you know, Tale Chaser Song and the the Simon books or the Memory of Sorrow and Thorn books was to grapple with that issue. By the time I moved on, uh, the Otherland books, which are kind of a near future epic, were much more of a thing to say. Okay, now I'm I'm, I'm I've got that out of my system. What kind of uh, uh, epic fantasy? is of me and my age and is not, you know, dependent on The Lord of the Rings or referential to The Lord of the Rings, except in the sense that, you know, any super, super important book is going to have some knock-on effects. But Otherland was my first attempt to say, now, what would be me and mine as compared to reacting to Tolkien? And so ever since then, I've kind of, although, again, Tolkien's too important not to have not to respond to, but ever since then, I feel like I've kind of done that bit now, and I can move on
0: and do other things. So, in a sense, it's kind of a relief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so interesting to uh, understand some of the 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 depth of influences and to see that how much uh, thought goes into some of this stuff. Because it's easy to think that it, you know, you can experience it and read it and enjoy it on the level of plot, but there's always so much more. Going on under the hood, and I, that's one of the things I think that uh, distinguishes uh, your novels from some of the rest of the fantasy genre is that there's an awareness that there is something to put under the hood. There's a hood there; you can put something there. <laughs> there's under a hood. <laughs>
1: well, I, one of the things I always try to tell um, you know new writers or or, or you know upcoming writers. Is if they're interested in writing genre fiction, you know, one of the first things I say is, for God's sakes, don't read very much genre fiction, because part of the the the, the, because for one thing, in genre fiction, there's there first of all, there's the distinction has to be made between the the artistic genre and the commercial genre, and there is no real artistic genre of fantasy fiction. It's a commercial genre. It's a subgenre of fantasy science fiction. And and there's all this kind of commercial, which essentially means Tolkien, just like there's a whole kind of a now a commercial um, subgenre or genre of vampire fiction or whatever, you know. Um, and, And those are things that are designed to make people happy by giving them certain things they expect that's what a commercial subgenre is and that's why people pay for it and that's why you know the covers look similar and there are all these coded messages of trust me you're going to like this it's the same ice cream as you had last time right which is nothing wrong with that i mean it's a product that people are buying the thing is is that what i would like to do and what in my better moments i think i actually might be doing is to write a book that is a book first and foremost and the subject matter happens to be fantasy, science fiction, you know, whatever. Now they're calling the new ones urban fantasy or whatever. But the subject, the subject matter and the story itself and, and, and the writing is what matters. And what category it fits into is of secondary interest. In other words, theoretically, anybody could read it who likes good fiction, and they would agree, yes, that's well written. may not be their personal cup of tea, but they would have to see, yes, it's a real book. And I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to do, which also probably shows where I'm at my least self-confident, you know, and I'm still hoping somebody will notice that I'm a real writer, you know, the kind of Pinocchio of the subgenre. <laughs> um, please call me a real boy. But that's basically it, is that, you know, I'm trying to write real books. It's just that I happen to like fantasy and science fiction as my, my area to work in and uh, you know, it, certainly it's been done. I mean, you look at people like J.G. Ballard or, or Ursula Le Guin or whatever, and these are people that are writing real books that just happen to be set in a fantastic universe. And that's kind of my that's my aspiration, anyway. That's my goal. Well, it's the old there. There are two genres: good books and bad books. Yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely. A, that's what matters. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that I tell people. You know, if you want to write this stuff. Don't read much of it because, you know, otherwise it becomes this kind of incestuous spiral where you just kind of spend more and more time reacting to things that are really similar to what you're doing. And you start to think purely in terms of taking tropes and giving them little twists to make them different. And you get this kind of what I think of as sort of the Dungeons and Dragons mentality. You know, it's like, well, yes, um, mine is a is a dwarf thief, but he's a dwarf thief who also has telekinesis. Yeah, I mean, it's like, come on what's the story, you know, not what's the variation from the last identical thing that somebody else did just like this. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really tell people, don't just read what you want to write. Broaden. Read as much as you can. You know, read Dickens. Read Jane Austen. Read Tolstoy. Read Agatha Christie, for God's sakes. You know, read nonfiction. Read Stephen Jay Gould. You know, find out how the world actually works. Read Barbara Tuckman. Um, you know, I, Anything you can find that's that's about the real world crucial to being a good
0: writer of the fantastic. I'd like you to talk about um, cr- the difference that you experienced creating Tailchaser's song, and let's just say now your latest book, *The Dirty Streets of Heaven*, in terms of how you approach the plot and the characters, because now you you understand what you're doing. <laughs> like the first time you got in the car and drove it around and got. Home and back in perfect shape. Yeah, right, right. And there was a certain amount element of luck, and, yeah. and as of, as opposed to what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, and a certain amount of you know just your your knuckles aching because you're gripping the wheel so hard. <laughs> I'm driving. I'm actually driving. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, and and also, I think Rick, to be honest, I'm a more conscious writer than a lot of writers in the sense that I think about my process. More than a lot of people, I may be wrong about that, but mm-hmm. certainly from my conversations with other writers, I seem to spend a lot more time, literally thinking about about structure and theme and all that stuff, than a lot of the people I know who are more um, naturalistic. I don't know what you'd call it; they just kind of write what they write and they mm-hmm. leave it to other people to figure out what it's about. And you know, I talk to of lots stuff. of those people. <laughs> yeah, and they're good writers. Oh, no, I, yeah, no, I don't no, think no, it's, no, it's no. a yeah. I don't think it's a good or bad thing. I think mm-hmm. it's just a difference in approach. But. Mm-hmm. I mean definitely uh, you know obviously over the years things have changed and one of the particular things about the new books is that it's really the first time since Tailchaser's Song um, that I have written a book with essentially only one character viewpoint. Now if I remember correctly in Tailchaser's Song I think once maybe twice in the story I bailed out into an into another story focus another character focus when I wasn't going to be able to tell the story by going back to the main character at that Mm -hmm. point. And that was still something in retrospect that troubles me. I'm sure nobody else ever gave it a second thought, but I always went, that's cheating in a sense, you know, that you've established this one character as your viewpoint and then you go away from that character. So in my later books, I made that part of it. I made the books big by having lots of focal characters, lots of characters whose story was being told and whose viewpoint the the reader had. For the first time now with the, the new books, which I call the Bobby Dollar books because I'm just finishing the second one and there's going to be minimum of three, um, The Dirty Streets of Heaven is the first. These are all told not just through one character viewpoint like the Tailchasers Chasers song book but um, through first-person narration, which is something I've never done outside of a short story. So it's actually Bobby who is narrating this in kind of the best noir fashion. He's telling you what's happening to him. So it's it's very much a narrowed focus and one of the reasons i wanted that was because um i wanted to write something that would move along at a very brisk clip because um in part because one of the complaints that some people not all people by any means and not even necessarily a majority but one of the the complaints that is somewhat legitimate that people have with some of my work is because these books are so big and the stories are so broad and they're often stretched out over three or four volumes it takes a while for the story to gain you know narrative momentum I mean deliberately I'm trying to set the world up for people and set up these big plots I mean anybody who's read George Martin or anybody else who does this stuff knows why I mean you know Mm -hmm. you got a lot to set up. So I wanted to do something different for for the sake of an audience that has to usually put up with that with me and for not finding out sometime what's going on till like a second or third volume and what some things mean. So in this book, it's like a half or a third the length of my normal books, stuff is jumping by the second chapter, Well, no, by the first, in some ways, you know that the main character is just being carried headlong into this. Every time he looks up, and he's trying to solve this thing that just happened to him, something else whacks him in the head, and you're just kind of the whole thing is spent tumbling downstairs. And then hopefully by the end, you know, me, the writer, I've resolved it all and made it all clear, and it all makes sense, and the reader goes, "Oh, okay, 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 good, cool, all right," you know. But it's such a different way to write for me in the sense that you're never relieving the tension by stepping away but you're never able to increase the tension by stepping away and adding Mm. something you have to tell everything through what the main character can find out you can't balance the readers knowledge off against the main characters knowledge um, because then you make the main character look stupid because he's seen all the same things the reader has you know there's a lot of differences that way that are really interesting to work with and i've enjoyed it But it also, in in an odd sense, it keeps it all in real time, in my mind. So I'm literally always with the character where I last left him. It's not the normal thing of having six or 12 major characters who are all sort of bubbling away at different heats. Um, You know, that that story is wherever I left that character, usually at the end of a chapter, usually in some kind of trouble. So it's almost like those old-fashioned movie serials, too, in the sense that it's you know, the audience, we hope, is always going, oh, my God, how's he going to get out of this? And as a writer, it also makes it easier for me to say, I'm not going to know until I figure it out. I'll just put him in this situation, you know, and, and just make it as impossible as I can. And so uh, impossible enough so that the reader is actually going, how the hell is he going to get him out of this? And if, if I actually don't know, when I put the character into that situation, it adds... <laughs> you know, The reader is going to be feeling what I'm feeling at that point, which is like, oh my God, how am I going to solve this? So all of these things are a very conscious decision, but in a way it's not so much that they're different from Tail Chaser Song, my first book, is that they're actually um, me going back to that more simple um, plan, mm-hmm. a simple roadmap than before. But I'm also a more complicated, sophisticated writer, I think, than I was 30 years ago. So I'm working on all the thematic levels and stuff in a more conscious way than I was. I'm more in control, I think, of my own subconscious, you know, in terms of where my influences are coming in. But I'm also more aware of what I want to say in this one. And unlike Tailchaser's Song, which whatever it was, it was basically a fantasy novel about cats, this actually has some real world significance. I mean, I am talking about a system where apparently heaven and hell and angels and demons and all that stuff is real. And it's what happens to human beings after they die. And all the things we've sort of traditionally been told that we we uh, public radio listeners tend to kind of put off in the corner of our brains where we put things that kind of, you know, let's just leave that alone. We don't really want to have to parse that one out because it doesn't seem like it makes sense. So... You know, for me, that's also a, there's a whole level of that, of the, the whole kind of uh, theological level, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the nature of reality and the nature of goodness and the nature of the cosmos. And if there were an order to things, first of all. I've never answered or haven't answered in the books yet. Is this the true order, such as as the main character perceives it, or is it another facade for something he doesn't know about
0: yet? Do you know as a writer at this point?
1: I have my ideas, but I'm also, like I said, with some of these things, I'm putting myself into these situations and I'm finding out some of this as I go along, which is one of the reasons I'm enjoying writing these books, is I'm not not trying to own everything ahead of time. I know what my tendencies are and I know what I'm interested in.
0: You put your character in peril and you put your as a writer in peril at the same moment.
1: Yeah not, and not just physical peril but peril of my I was not my immortal soul so much because I'm not sure I believe in that but certainly in peril of putting myself into writing myself into a corner where I'm having to cre- construct something that seems unbelievable to me. So I'm trying to find a way to to make my own quite you know complicated questions about how the universe works and sync them up with this kind of old-fashioned melodrama of good versus bad and find
0: some way to make them work together in a way that makes me and I hope the the readers happy. Now, this is uh, something of a detective novel then, a metaphysical detective novel, so I'd like you to talk a little bit just about who's who's the the Tolkien of mystery for you.
1: (sighs) Well... I actually have always read a lot of mystery and crime. Um, It's interestingly enough, since I became a fantasy and science fiction writer myself, it's kind of become my go-to escape reading. Um, And I think because usually it's more, um, it's kind of puzzle writing, but it's puzzle writing That um, usually if it's well done, good crime fiction or mystery fiction, the the, the character writing is as good as any other character writing if it's done well. If you look at somebody like that I really like, like uh, Ruth Rendell or Ian Rankin, you know, (laughs) these people are just good writers. Oh, yeah. And they happen to write. Interesting, realistic characters, but again, like me, within this sort of—I um, don't want to say straitjacket because it's not confining—but within this this focusing um, pr- these focusing parameters of a certain kind of story. In other words, if you're reading a Ruth Rendell, an Inspector Wexford, it may go all over the shop in terms of the philosophical aspects, and the, the characters may have all kinds of interesting. Uh, discoveries and refutations of fondly held beliefs, and you see all kinds of interesting things about the actual life of people and how they interact and what they think. All like a, a any modern, well done, regular novel, mainstream novel, whatever you want to call it. But you're also promising the reader, or the writer is promising the reader, a certain set of experiences. There will be a a, a problem posed, a question, a a riddle posed. And you will get a chance to to see information that will help you try to solve that puzzle alongside the main character. And the writer is also essentially guaranteeing you that at the end of it, you will get some kind of an answer to that puzzle. It will not be a work of modernist uh, fiction that says, well, there is no answer. (laughs) You You will get an answer to that particular narrowed down question who killed so and so or why did such and such happen um. Because a lot of times in Ruth Rendell, you already know who killed who, but the whole story is about why. Why oh, did that yeah. happen? It doesn't seem to make sense. She's so good. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm a huge fan, and have been for years since I first discovered her. What was the first book by her you read? I suspect oh, it was Dark Adapted Eye, you mm, yeah, know, which that... is I, still one of the classics. But it yeah. was
0: either that one or House of Stairs. I can't remember which I first. Yeah, the both those were I think I think the Dark Adapted Eye may have been the first one of hers I read as well.
1: But I mean, they're almost. I mean, I remember just a few years ago being knocked out. Well, it's more than a few years now, but. I mean, you know, many years after that, being knocked out when *Semi-Solo* first came out, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite Wexford novels, and just the last sentence, as my wife always says, is one of the great last sentences in fiction. I'm obviously not going to tell anybody because they might want to pick it up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love that stuff. I read it for recreation myself, mm-hmm. um, if you know the, the, the good stuff and. What I like about it, um, I try to take some of that into the Bobby Dollar books, but also just like I try to take some of epic fantasy into the other land books and make it a science fiction thing, I try to take some of the, what I like about crime fiction and try to make it a fantasy thing with these. So we've got all the stuff that people like me. I uh, have to admit that we love about fantasy novels. It's got like monsters and crazy ass stuff and things you never expected to hear in a book and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And world building because obviously mm-hmm. I'm creating heaven and hell and the secret network of both of those on earth as well. So I'm getting to do – I get to do plenty of world building. Um, but at the same time, then I can bring in that that kind of hard-boiled noir thing where you've got this main character who's uh, a lot like the reader likes to think of him or herself, you know, kind of an ordinary person, bucking the system, getting stuck with the dirty jobs, you know, with a sense of humor, which is very strong in the Bobby Dollar books because that's a big part of me, and I like to work that in, in, in fiction. Um, and it came with his voice. As soon as I started writing him, he was just this very, to me, very funny guy, very dark, funny, uh, an angel with a very bad attitude, basically. And yeah. so, you know, I tried to combine all those elements from two genres that I like and find something that was, you know, not unique to me by any means because other people have done good things in this sort of general area but certainly that would be something my readers haven't seen from me before and that i hope will maybe also introduce me to some readers who are terrified uh understandably so of four book 800 page volume you know monster stories you know that although unlike george martin my dear friend at least i've finished mine george i've finished mine several of them anyway (laughs)
0: Uh, now, uh, you, you're used to writing expansive novels with lots of space. Right. Uh, you've described this book, and there's a lot of stuff in there. Talk about uh, streamlining all this stuff to fit into that kind of toe-tapping mystery format with all the other stuff because it's hard enough to just write a toe-tapping mystery set in this world where you don't have to do world building or describe monsters or describe a a theological system.
1: Well, I don't want to make it sound harder than it is. I mean, one of the advantages for writing, um, for being in this kind of genre as compared to a straight uh, crime genre is that I can't invent things that don't exist when I need to amp up the the scare or to, to help the character find a way out of a solution. I mean, I am dealing with things that are effectively quasi-magical. So while I try to limit that and to try to explain them as much as possible during the course of the book, any of these things I might be using later on, I want readers to know how they work and what the... Because let's face it, I mean, most readers in the real world don't get much chance to, to you know, to fire, a, a, you know, a, a Mac, a, you, know, a, a, you know, an automatic weapon in their daily life or whatever. But if you put one in a book, people will go, oh, yeah, that makes sense that you can shoot somebody with one of those and it'll kill them, you know. Well, I have to set those things up ahead of time so that the readers also know, well, if a character does this, it will do that. Even though it's not from the real world, in this world it works. But you can't just pop those out of nowhere. But the fact that you can set them up and use them when you need them means you do have some things that are not available to a normal crime writer. On the other hand, you also have to live with everything you've created. So if you create a monster that can't be killed by gunfire, that you're going to have to kill off somewhere before the end of the story, you better find a way to explain why that character can now manage to finally kill this thing that's trying to kill him or something like that. So there's both more freedom than a normal crime writer has, but there's the concomitant responsibility of treating that freedom, you know, responsibly and not tricking the reader or making the reader feel tricked. Um, Other than that, a lot of it is really, a lot of the speed of it is just dictated by the fact that it is one character. Um, and, And he's telling the story. I don't have a lot of breaks in in the narrative because the way I'm setting it up quite purposefully is that every time he moves a little bit forward in terms of learning something about this mess that he's embroiled in, something blindsides him. You know, something else comes crashing in from the side that he wasn't even considering and kaboom and it hits him. And then there's another, you know, bit of chaos and you know, danger and all this stuff, and then he kind of is dragging himself back together again and going, now, where, what was I thinking about, you know? <laughs> in a way, I'm probably recapitulating my own real life, except in my case, it's not monsters. It's kids and dogs and things like that that suddenly come blindside me out of nowhere, and then I have to patch my my thinking processes back together again. But I think that's the main thing, is just the fact that it's all happening to this one character. It almost has to move forward because... The one lesson I learned from uh, another one of my absolute favorite writers and about of the only one of the only things he ever did that that didn't work for me very well was Roger Zelazny, whose work has always been very, very important to me. And some of my favorite books, uh, Lord of Light and stuff like that. And I loved the first few Amber books as well, which I thought were really wonderful, which are kind of, again, a fantasy science fiction thing that start out in the real world for those who haven't read them. But they wound up being like six or seven books worth. And by the fifth, sixth or seventh book of those, the main character was kind of having to rehearse for the reader all the plot. And there was so much plot, and the plot just kept, you know, adding on without the old plot being resolved. And by the fifth, sixth, seventh books, um, and I can't remember the titles, but I just remember that Corwin was now involved with like all these different, different things in different worlds, and his own uh, offspring, and his own parents, and all of his brothers and sisters. And so he'd have to stop every few minutes and go, well, if such and such did this, then that meant such and such was such and such. But if such and such was, such and you'd have these increasingly large. Chunks of exposition,
0: mm-hmm. so kind of biblical.
1: Yeah, and I'm really struggling not to do that in these books, and I'm trying to find a solution that works for me. Where on the one hand, I, you know, the reader says, "Well, this guy is in fear of his life, and he's trying to solve these problems or crimes or whatever." Um, obviously, he's going to be thinking about them somewhat. They they have to be figured out. There's an element of intellectual uh, pursuit that's involved in in solving his problems. But if they're happening all the time and he's always thinking plot, then the the story bogs down because half the readership won't need that reprise of what's been happening. And even the ones that do will start to notice after a while that you're taking a step to the side for every step forward because you keep having to stop and, and put in the expository lumps as some writer friends of mine used to call them. So I'm really trying to find a way to to get the exposition in in small doses and to not make him an overly, he's not as thoughtful as I am, you know, he's not as paralyzed by consideration as I am. He's not trying to figure out every possibility the way I would in the same situation to avoid making a wrong step. As he says himself, sometimes stuff just gets too complicated and then I just have to put my head down and and go forward until I run into something, you know, and that's how I resolve that. That's not me, but it works much better.
0: With a character in a novel,
1: you know, unless you're writing a Philip Roth novel, and I'm not good enough to write a Philip Roth novel.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that uh, interests me is that on one hand, you're kind of uh, surfing the wave of the plot of each novel Mm. but you know there are three novels so you're also kind of surfing three waves that you haven't reached the beginning to so talk about that kind of that balancing act between the arc for each book and understanding the arc for where you think you want this to go and where it may or may not even indeed it sounds like go. Well and and actually that's a a major consideration Rick because
1: one of the things that's very different about the, the Bobby Dollar books for me is that first of all other than the things I've already mentioned, like the first person narrative and stuff like that, but is uh, one of the things that's that's different is that the books themselves are meant to be within reason standalone books. In other words, I would like people to be able to pick up the second or the third book without having read the first two and pick up enough of what they need to know out of context. This is another reason why I don't want huge, long swathes of of uh, backstory because I don't want the readers to feel like oh my god I have to know all of this stuff because let's face it when you're really enjoying a crime novel no matter how well written part of what you're enjoying is that feeling of being on a ride being in forward motion having things happen and just kind of if you want to you can just perceive it as a story and you don't have to solve the crime and that's fine so I have to make that available to the readers, and one of the ways I'm making that available is by constructing the books, I hope, in such a way that if somebody picks up the second book, they will, I would hope, say, ooh, now I want to read the first one. But they won't have to go do that before they read the second one. Mm -hmm. They can be on a plane or something and enjoy the second book perfectly well and then go back and find another one, if they want. So that's the idea. So that's one thing that's been very different that way is trying to – Construct the books in such a way that each one has an ending in a way that the, like, the Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn books didn't or the Otherland books didn't. So that you could read it and if you never read any other books, you would at least felt like, well, I got an ending. Mm -hmm. I got an ending to that book. Similarly, I don't know if I'm going to finish it. Unlike a lot of these other big projects of mine where I really had them all planned through to an ending. All I have planned through here is basically an arc of three books. But at the end of it, if I have my way, although there will be big changes and each book will have a satisfying ending to it, I have a sneaking suspicion that that Bobby Dollar, AKA Deloreal, the angel, who is the main character, Will be in some version of status quo at the end of the third book. In other words, he won't be dead. He won't have changed dramatically. He will not have changed his situation in the world a whole lot. He'll still be an angel. He'll still be kind of queasily between the two sides on some issues. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Waiting in
0: his office for a blonde to show up.
1: Basically, yeah. I mean, more. You know, I mean, that's obviously (laughs) the the kind of the 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 cartoonish trope that we all know. And Mm -hmm. that, but yeah. Exactly. I want it to feel that way, that he is now a character who I can go back to
0: mm-hmm.
1: without it having to be, you know, one big story arc. Mm-hmm. So, and if people like it, I'm, I'm really enjoying writing them. It's, for one thing, it's just great to be able to write sex and swearing, you know, in a way that I have not felt as comfortable with in my fantasy novels for some reason. So, um, yeah, all of those, all of those reasons make them a little... Different and make it a part of of the structuring that that kind of sets this apart. It, it is supposed to be more of a standalone. It is supposed to be more of what would be the commercial term a more um, easily entered world, I yeah. guess,
0: than some of my others. Now, uh, when you're when you're when you're in the midst of a project like this, I'd like to just talk about um, uh, creating. You know, do you? your day kind of your daily work do you like have a kind of a spreadsheet that shows you where you're going or are you just working on a, a on one file that you just keep appending to and revising um well in a in a purely technical kind of uh
1: state uh, what i do is i i get up every day and um everything is by chapters when i'm doing first draft so you know each file is separate by chapter, and I'm either finishing a chapter or I'm starting a new one. This book for me, because of the way I'm writing, and I'm writing faster than ever, I'm kind of trying to do a chapter a day, which is for me quite fast. It means I'm going up from maybe five pages a day to anywhere between 10 and 15 pages a day, Um, which for some reason, I think again, because I don't have to play um, chess with 12, 15 different storylines, you know, so all I have to do is figure out what's happening to Bobby. You know, and that makes it faster. But anyway, so so what I do with those is I will, you know, I'll get up, I'll lie around, I'll do my thinking part of the day first, and then I'll sit down and, and write for several hours to kind of crank through that. And uh, then I kind of have two versions going forward. I have the chapter-by-chapter chapter version, and then I have a one large file version that I will, when I'm satisfied with the chapter, I will append it on to the end of that. So that's the kind of tells me how much of the book I've written. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the chapter ones makes it easier to go back and just find particular things I need to look up or whatever. And then at the end, I will collapse. I'll probably just get rid of the chapter format entirely and just keep the one big manuscript. Um, But as for now, I have to remember to bring them both up to date. So if that's what you mean in the technical sense, yeah, that's that's pretty much how it works. But the only thing I think that's slightly unusual about my process, and I may have said this to you the last time we talked, is that I don't tend to... I don't tend to stare at my screen. I don't sit down and look at the screen and say, okay, now what's going to happen? I tend to do that part away from a screen, preferably lying down, just because <laughs> I find that the easiest, honestly, just physically the easiest. I don't know if it's a blood flow to the brain issue or a bad joints, aching, you know, aching limbs, you know, it's more comfortable or I don't know, but I just, I like to lie down Put on some ambient music or something, or some quiet classical music, and just let my brain rove. And I don't, I don't write things down until I'm actually writing story material. So I don't have notes. I don't have uh, lists of characters or places or things like that. I will occasionally, if something's crucial, um, jot a little note of it or something. Um, but, what ambient
0: l- music do you listen to Oh God
1: uh, primarily th- I listen to a lot of uh, well Brian Eno stuff obviously and there's a, a woman who's now actually become a friend on Facebook named Connie st Pierre who does a lot of cool ambient stuff also hmm. so I've got about six seven eight hours total of, of at least no more than that about 12 or 15 hours at least of ambient stuff on just you know that I can just put on shuffle and turn it way down so it just engages You know, enough to distract me from the outside world, and then I can just let the thoughts go. And although the ambient music thing is just the last five years or so, that's that's basically what I've always done. Mm -hmm. I always just try and do all my thinking ahead of time Mm -hmm. because it's easier. Again, I think of it kind of like like three-dimensional chess. You know, you're moving things around, and this affects this, and so you flip them around, and you try that, and you try this. And as long as they're in my head, they're fluid. And I can easily move them and then disassemble them and build them another way and try different possibilities. I think kind of the way I've heard that some um, chemists and stuff will think about molecules, you know, literally kind of making models in their head and putting them together and then going, no, that won't work, and snapping them apart and doing them again. That's that's how it works for me Um, because everything has a knock-on effect. So when you change one thing, then it's changing other things, and you have to be able to hold them all together. But once I'm done with that, then it means that when I sit down at the computer, I can just pretty much write for the whole time I'm there because I've thought through ahead of time in a general sense. Okay, so in this chapter, you know, uh, Bobby is trying to do this, but I need something to happen. So, okay, so this is going to happen to him, and he's going to have this thing, but then I need – we could have some interesting character stuff or some, some uh, location stuff here to give more of a feeling of where he is. And then, oh, yeah, but I was thinking if I did that, I could add – such and such a character and would this be a good place for you know and I'm doing all that but I solve that all in a general sense ahead of time leaving some flexibility and then you know then I just write and I basically write until I've finished whatever I'm working on so as I said usually I'm trying to shoot for a chapter so which also gives a kind of an arc to that day's work too because then I'm trying to get to a point where okay now I can start thinking tomorrow morning about how to get him out of this situation that I've put him into that I have, at this moment, no idea how to get him out of. (laughs) So, you know, it's good to end on that so that you then have some thinking
0: time before you have to come back and actually solve the problem you've created. You have a a significant amount of uh, short fiction that you write. Um, There's some couple of great uh, collections out from Subterranean Press. I'd like you to talk about uh, when you find the time to do that, and just also going back and forth between, you know, the people who publish the, the big fantasies and, and Subterranean Press, who's uh, verging on being a pretty big publisher oh, itself.
1: I, I hope so, because Bill is a really good guy, oh, the, this, you her. know, her. Schaefer, Subterranean, really nice man. Um, well, it's it's actually interesting you should mention this, because I'm literally in the middle of one of these these sort of paroxysms of, of short story creation at the moment, because what I tend to do is I'll say to people, yeah, I think I can do, I, I mostly only do stories when people ask for them for anthologies these days because I just don't have enough time to kind of write them myself on spec. Um, but I still like to do short fiction. So when people people ask me all the time to do stuff for anthologies, and if I like the idea, I'll go, ooh, yeah, I could probably do something for that. Um, how far ahead is it? So the problem is, though, is like I often do, is I kind of put all these things off into some... Non-specific future, and I just suddenly realized, like a week ago, that I have four stories that I told people I, I could get to them by July 1st. Now, mind you, I also have to finish the first draft of my book by July 1st because I'm going to be meeting with my publishers in August. I'm going out to New York for something in August, a publicity thing, and they're going like, "Well, that's the perfect time to have a uh, you know a story conference about the first draft." So I'm suddenly realizing, oh, my God, what was I thinking? Now I have to do all these short stories. So uh, I, I'm right in the middle of that. And the problem, of course, is that all those short stories are obviously short and therefore faster to write. Each one of them has to have an idea. You know, you have to have a good idea for that short story or there's no point in writing it. Whereas... You can crank out 20 pages on, on a novel almost without thinking about it. It may not be your best work, and you may go back and fix it later. But, you know, as long as you have a general idea of what the character's doing and a decent writer's imagination, you can just do continuation of what you're already doing. Short story, you know, that's, every short story has, is like a little novel. You know, it has its own characters. It has its own arc. What am I trying to say here? What style am I using? Because for me, I go all over the map. So I'm at the moment, I'm just I'm doing uh, I'm doing a weird Western story. I'm doing a story for a friend's uh, anthology, uh, Sean Speakman, who is uh, doing a a benefit anthology. And I'm doing one for that that I just wrote yesterday, kind of in a burst 19 pages in in an afternoon. Um, I'm doing a, a story for uh, one of Gardner Dozois' anthologies, which is called Rip Off. And the premise is that taking a famous first line and then writing a completely different story from there. You know, So people are doing things like, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and then turning that into a story that has nothing to do with Tale of Two Cities or, you know, stuff like that. And at the moment, I'm working with the, the first lines of Genesis, you know, just to... You know, I, <laughs> Not I, a little spa. yeah, <laughs> exactly um so I've got like four of those things all going on, and i 'm trying to finish the second Bobby dollar book, and i 'm just particularly disgusted with myself for my lack of forward planning right now because it's you know it's just a bit much, but we'll get there
0: now, uh when you're talking about the Bobby Dollar books, they sound like they 're tailor made to for the movies. And this is interesting because you your first novel, Tail Chaser's Song, is being made into an animated movie and the other land books are also on their way to the to the screen. So I'd like you to talk about uh, the let's talk about Tail Chaser's Song first. How involved are you in this process?
1: I've been I've been involved in a lot of different ways and I was involved in more in the early stages with this one when they were putting together their their first their pitch and then their script and things like that. Um, Tell Chaser's song is being made into an animated film by a very a really nice group of people, really cool group of people called uh, Animatropolis out of uh, Austin, Texas. But they are, and I, I forgot to bring the information with me. Typical Ted. Um, but they are working with uh, a large and and quite well known and pretty damn cool uh, Japanese animation company to do mm-hmm. the actual film so they're like the production part and they're doing a lot of the early design work with the Japanese animators and then the the Japanese company is going to do most of the work but the it's going to be American well not just American but I mean you know voice actors will be people that will sell in the English speaking market and things like that so it's going to be predominantly an English language film first although I'm sure they'll also have a Japanese release. So that, at the moment, I am just kind of standing around on because there's not really anything for me to do. They're just in the early stages of design and stuff, And uh, although it's all going forward. And I will have more to say again as we get on with the design phase. And they're saying, well, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? The um, other land is more complicated because it's in an earlier stage. It's an option. Um, It's an option with some really cool people. Danlin Productions, who, among other things, have done the uh, Robert Downey Sherlock Holmes films. Um, they, they picked it because, uh, two of the people, one of them, the director of development, the other one, the screenwriter, that was like their dream project. So that's actually, there's people involved who really want to make this and not just because they think it might be commercial, which is nice, Mm -hmm. which gives it a better chance of being made. And I will probably be very involved in that because I don't think we're going to do Otherland per se. I think we're going to wind up doing something slightly different with it, like a prequel because at this point it's probably a single movie and we don't think that there's any possible way speaking again of the length of some of my work there's no possible way to do the Otherland story as it exists as a single film mm-hmm. just too much too much stuff so we may actually do some kind of prequel and then hopefully that will then lead to us being able to do the full big Otherland thing you know either as a series of movies or as a God knows, an HBO thing or something like that. We'll see. Who knows? So I'm going to be more involved in that because I'll probably actually, in some sense, be working on writing a New Otherland story. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really interesting. And I think, yeah, obviously, I think the Bobby Dollar things would would be a good fit for stuff like that because it is very much a format that people are familiar with, namely that sort of, you know, lone noir hero with, you know, guns and dames and all that. But in this case, they're angels and demons and things. Um, and monsters, of course, because I love monsters. And uh, but you know, I think it's I think it's one of those things that almost anybody could you know even even the most kind of occluded Hollywood types could look at it and go, oh, I see how this could be a movie. Whereas Otherland, I, I think you have to be somebody who already knows the material to get it, and then we have to find a way to make it acceptable to film mm-hmm. to
0: film folk. Uh, you know, I have to ask you, <laughs> wrap this up, about monsters. Because I'm a big monster fan myself. I, I love a good monster. And I would like, tell me, what was the first monster that you really, that you saw, you know, if there's a kid or something, that, that really got, your inter- got you interested in them? And then talk about how you create them. Well, the first, as far as I
1: remember, and I'm sure there were other things that qualified, but I do remember being a very, very small child. And being extremely impressed with the first Godzilla movie, the one where Godzilla was actually a bad monster, scary thing, uh, the one with Raymond Burr. You mm-hmm. know, I think they oh, yeah. like shot his scene separately and then spliced them in and stuff. When I was a really small kid, the first time, uh, at least this is how I remember it. It's always interesting that things are not always what you remember. Mm-hmm. But I remember there being a scene of Godzilla literally appearing over the top of a hill, and all of, of course, the the Japanese people running screaming in the foreground and that has always that kind of thing that giant monster thing has stuck with me and so you know when I had a chance to write uh the other land books and I I wanted something exciting and scary I said oh it has to be giant monster you know and and you know dinosaurs have been so done and it wound up being a giant praying mantis which I thought would be suitably frightening to be chased by a 50 foot high praying mantis or in fact the people are actually shrunken down so it's a normal size praying mantis but it's the equivalent of if it were fifty feet tall and we were our size but also then later on I remember being very affected by a lot of the universal monster movies so um, you know Boris Karloff is the mummy and Boris Karloff of course is Frankenstein and uh, Lon Chaney Jr as the Wolfman uh, which was big for me and and still is even though in retrospect it doesn't do that much for me, but the makeup, for some reason, really worked for me. And I remember thinking, that's what a monster should be. Mm-hmm. Dracula, I wasn't as much of a vampire person. I mean, I got it, but it wasn't, you know. Interestingly, it was the mummy and the and the werewolf that got me more than anything else. And I remember, in fact, in uh, Stephen King in Salem's Lot talking about, you know, kids knew about death. Death was when the monsters got you. And that was spot on. I mean, that was exactly it. Monsters are this very reductionist kid version of death. Because if you think about it, nobody really ever, when you're a kid and you're scared of the monsters, you very seldom, or at least most of the kids I know, never actually thought about what they're going to do to you. You know, I mean, if the mummy catches you. What's he actually going to do to you? I mean, mummies don't eat people. You know, I mean, theoretically, I guess he could strangle you or something. But it's the mere fact of the mummy getting you. And in that sense, it's like death. You're not really thinking beyond that point. You're thinking of the thing itself as so much to be avoided that the, the mechanics of it aren't even important. And so that became a big part of it for me. And one other thing that came from Stephen King, although I believed this long before I heard him articulate it, In his book, Dance Macabre, which is about writing horror fiction, King talks about what I refer to as the 10-foot insect dictum, which in short is, you know, you put your character in a situation where they're on one side of a door and something's outside of the door and you know it's really bad, you know it's really scary, and the victim or the person is standing there and that thing's outside, and what is it, what is it, what is it, and then you open the door and it's a 10-foot-tall bug. Except as soon as you show people it's a 10 foot tall bug, some of them are going to be going, oh, geez, I thought it was like a 100 foot tall bug. And others are going to be going, bugs? That's not scary. I thought it was like a giant dripping drowned corpse. Or, you know, you'll get all these different things. As soon as you make it really explicit, you are – what you gain – there's also a loss. What you gain by showing people the monster, you also lose by making the monster specific.
0: The low craftian method of just showing you the tentacle.
1: Exactly. So I have always, whenever I work with monsters, there's always this balance I'm trying to keep between describing it enough that the reader can work with me and feel what I want them to feel, but not describing it so much that I am taking away from the reader's personalization. And um, this is my only problem with films, because sometimes there's, you know, famously another famous line, um, I've just forgotten who said it, but uh, a great actress, I believe, of her time, it wasn't Greta Garbo, but it was somebody like that who, when she saw uh, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast at the end, where the beast becomes the handsome prince, and whoever this famous actress is, is is known to have said, oh, I want my beast back, you know, because this prince just was just a prince, you know, It it wasn't magical, it wasn't, you know, and you could always imagine him being better looking than he actually was when he shows up. So I, I, that's always been a big part of monsters for me is not just the monster itself but the potential of monsterhood and the the personalness of monsters. Like you said, you really into them too. You know, we all make these things more effective when we add to whatever someone else has given us. And uh, in some ways, that's why I think the old... Black and white movies still work so well. It's it, yes, they're kind of clumsy to us in some ways, but because they were not allowed to show certain things because it was considered to be too rough or too crude for the audiences, they're leaving us room to to imagine things more in a way that unfortunately doesn't happen now in films. You know, I mean, so I'm also a big believer in that. Leave a little room for the audience. Well,
0: oh, that's what why the written monsters will always trump anything you're going to see on the screen
1: oh i mean the scariest thing i mean the scariest things that i've ever run into are things in films there are things like i don't know i'm sure you've seen it the innocence Mm -hmm. with deborah carr based on turn of the screw oh sure which to me was always one of the scariest things because there was never any physical menace nobody was trying to you know like in the ridiculous remake of haunting of hill house where you got literally things jumping out of the walls and pounding on people and trying to strangle them and all this kind of nonsense and You know, the original Innocence or the book, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, you know, it's all about what does it want? We don't know, you know, what's going to happen? We don't know. That's the scary stuff. So, yeah, big, big believer in, you know, the imagination
0: is the scariest thing. Well, we'll look forward to reading the – reaping the rewards of your imagination with – when we get The Dirty Streets of Heaven what's the street date for The Dirty Streets? September very beginning of September of this year and then hopefully only about
1: six months till the next one comes out which will be called Happy Hour in Hell and then the last volume that I know of the third volume will be called Sleeping Late on Judgment Day
0: uh, Though I can see the sense of humor coming out already I keep myself amused I've been speaking with Tad Williams his forthcoming book is The Dirty Streets of Heaven thank you for joining me Tad thank you for having me Rick <music>